podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the stories behind the food that we all love. Today, I have a wonderful woman in the studio by the name of Stephanie Alexandra. This woman's contribution to the industry in Australia has no equal. If you don't know her name, then you must have been hiding under a rock. She's written so many cookbooks I can't keep count, and one book alone, A Cook's Companion, she sold over half a million copies. She's the founder of the Kitchen Garden Foundation, teaching Australian kids positive food habits that will set them up for life. She's been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for her contribution to the food industry. In fact, the list goes on and on. And what I love is her philosophy of simplicity, of beautiful food, of family, of table. They're healthy habits that we should all adopt for life. It's something that I'm still trying to master myself. She's one of the most respected chefs of our time, and it was an honour to sit down and have this chat with Stephanie Alexander. I was sitting down yesterday, and the first question I wrote down um, was, who sat around your kitchen table when you were little? When I was little, when I was three or four, um, it would be my mother, my father, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, and my sister, who would have been a baby. And what did that look like? What did it smell like? What did it feel well, like? Well, it was to pretty. You? It was pretty. I don't have huge memories of when I was about five or six, but I lived in Essendon at the time. My father was working for the government, the federal government, and so he used to spend Monday to Friday in Canberra. And in those days, you didn't fly to Canberra; you were driven to Canberra. <laughs> he had a chauffeur that that came to take him. He was a, he was a parliamentary secretary, right? That's commuting commitment. Yeah. It was must have been terrible. Oh. Just the whole drive to Canberra twice a week, there and back four times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so home was pretty simple, and my mother always loved to cook, and her cooking I didn't realise when I was five or six probably, but by the time I was eight or nine or ten, I certainly was aware that cooking and what we ate was incredibly important to my mother. She liked to talk about it as much as cook cook it. Um, and there were always stories. And, of course, the other thing that was being at that time, it was fairly close to the end of the Second World War. My parents became very involved in welcoming refugees to Australia, which were mostly Jewish people who had escaped Hitler's ghastliness, so that as I was a teenager, many of the people who joined our table were friends of my parents who were Austrian or Polish or Czech. And that was that was interesting and unusual, I mean, important, but not many of the, my school friends um, had that sort of interna- international cosmopolitan influences being so early in their lives. We are talking now late Early 50s. Yeah. So some fascinating conversations around yeah, the table. Probably that I didn't understand, but I did notice that they the guests would bring food. They always brought food so that you would have a poppy seed cake or a walnut cake or a liqueur with gold flakes floating in it or, you know, and so, you know, it was pretty wide-eyed stuff. Yeah. Can you remember, I mean, obviously you've mentioned a couple of things there, but do you remember, I mean, in terms of how your mum cooked, 
something very different that as a kid that you would have eaten that one of the guests Well, would. she was inspired by those friends. And, I mean, she really sparked off their ideas and the fact that they did things differently. And so um, she would make efforts to try and find an unusual cheese, which was not that easy in the 50s. There were some. Uh, there was a big Dutch population, so we had things with cumin seed in them, cheese with cumin seed. And uh, rye bread was common in our family. It still is. Um, and my father loved red wine. So that was very unusual in the 1952. But he was probably a, a devotee of Jimmy Watson's and used to bring cases of wine from Rutherglen. Because we, by this stage we'd moved to the Mornington Peninsula when I was nine. And um, my mum and dad would have a little vermouth, and, vermouth with a slice of lemon in before, before dinner he would come into the kitchen and say, what's for dinner, Mary? And she would say what she was cooking and uh, he would pull out a bottle of, there was probably three options, I don't know, it's probably a Shiraz and a Durif or some yeah. other, they were huge wines. Um, and they they really enjoyed it. And every night we sat around this beautiful table which my father had made and until 1956, which we know what happened in 1956, television. But until there was television, we had a complete circle of family. Yeah. And then once it was television, the circle had to have a little hole in it so you could watch the news. <laughs> and is that why, I suppose, obviously, why the family table is so important to you? I think so. It was where I learned so much and where I heard so much. And my grandfather was a, a rabid um, left-wing agitator, I think you'd say. And so politics was the name of the game around our table with or without some of these extra friends from Europe and there were fiendish arguments between my father and my grandfather. My father also was very left-wing but he thought my grandfather was just a bit too, too far. extreme. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, shoot all Americans. You know, Round them he up. He would sort of say. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there would be a lot of table thumping and my brothers found that very hard and I think looking back on it, it was actually very bad for them and because they found the conflict unbearable and so they would leave the table and slam doors and and uh, mum would squeak away about, come back, come back. You yeah. know, this and leave your father and grandfather arguing. Well, my father tried very hard. He would say, I want you all, you children, to understand that what Grandpa is saying is there is another point of view and I want to put it. So there would be he trying to be the moderate, yeah. my, my grandfather trying to re revolutionise the entire world and Mum sort of quivering in the background. Yeah. I have a very similar background. My dad and I will argue about politics and my dad's such a socialist, you know, diehard, mm. uh, for hours. And, of course, when I became a businessman it got worse you know, because now we're at opposing ends of the political, you know, spectrum. But And everyone else will leave the table. People will go to bed and we'll be still arguing. I think what I got probably for, that has stayed with me, I mean, there were a lot of immediate things that I didn't like the conflict either. Nobody liked the shouting. But uh, what I have kept from that is my father's mantra of there's always two sides to a question. Stephanie, he used to say that nothing and no one is ever as good or as bad as that first appears. I love that. See, I'm going to remember that one. And I think my dad taught me the same. I think it's empathy. It's an understanding of another person's yeah. perspective, regardless yeah. of how strongly you feel about something. So uh, if we 
wind the clock forward because I get a sense when I was looking at your uh, your career that there's a rebellious um, part to Stephanie Alexander that maybe people don't think about. Did you train as a librarian first yes. and then leave? Yes. Or did you travel? Because I read no, that you no, travelled no. I, very um, young. I had done my library training. I think I probably hadn't done all of it. I think I had to complete it when I came back. I think I'd done about eight of the ten subjects and I got decided it was time to, to go. And then I, after my adventures and came back, you know, with a Jamaican husband and did the last two subjects then and worked as a librarian for a little while until right. we opened Jamaica House. So this is the rebellious bit that I was trying to get into. Yes. So you just left. So obviously yeah. you'd, you'd left school, you'd gone off to train as a librarian. I went off to the university to do uni. an arts degree. Okay. And um, I, I think I failed one subject in my last year and so I had to work. So I got a job in a library, which which I was very happy to do. That was not in any way a problem. Started library training, as in those days you did it a bit on the job, and finished my degree and then that was it. Oh, that's what you did. Everybody, you just went off. But instead of doing what everybody else was doing, which was to get the £99 trip on the Patras or whatever, there was the trip, the boat at the time. Yeah. I decided that I was going to follow what my father had done 30 years before, which was to go on a French cargo boat. And that, of course, was three times the price, which I expected my father to pay, which he did, which is outrageous when I think about it now. <laughs> and it went across the Pacific, so it was much more exotic. You know, it went to uh, what was then Port Vila, now Vanuatu, and then Tahiti and through the Panama Canal and... Uh, there were lots of adventures. Are you travelling on your own? I was, and which was not and the you intention. Were how old? I, I had organised, well, a friend had said she would come, and then at about, you know, the very last three weeks yeah. beforehand said, oh, by the way, I've fallen in love with somebody, so I'm not going. And even today, when I think of setting out to go to Europe, on my own, just 21. I must have been insane because <laughs> I had one... On a French cargo boat, On a French cargo Well, yeah, I was very much... Pacific. I was already in love with the idea of France, so that was a bit of a turn-on. The only person I knew in Europe was the former wife of my father's brother, and I didn't know her either, but she had said <laughs> I could stay with her for a week. So that was quite brave. It was also stupid. Yeah, but that's the, the joy of youth. I think so. You just it? have You're no just idea. Have a go. No idea. Do, do you remember any dodgy moments on the on that cargo boat? Other than oh, that? lots. Don't give me. Give us. Give they're us not one. really for general exhibition. I. Oh, can't we have a little taster? Well, I mean, I had I had a very romantic trip on the cargo boat with lots of wonderful French sailors, and um, it was amazing. Really, it was like a different. It was, it was six and a half weeks on a boat, yeah. which is a very long time. And um, days and days and days where you saw nothing but sea. Um, so it was sort of like a, a little world in its own. Yeah. And I do look back on that and, yeah, think, goodness gracious. And uh, there were a lot of amazing things happening on that boat. And I have written a lot about that in my memoir, which is quite um, racy. <laughs> and... It was another part of growing up, really, and I was was the language, the French language, all around me, which of course I absolutely loved, and um, I behaved rather badly. Yeah, well done. See, I like that. We want to hear. I haven't read the memoir. I must be honest. You so better read that. I think better now, read now that, Gary. Now that you've tempted us all, everybody's <laughs> going to go write write that one down. Let's go and buy that. So you so you you turned up in London. Or? Turned up in London. Yeah. 
and my instincts were to get to France as quickly as possible. Yeah. And um, so I got a job as an au pair and so I very quickly headed back to um, Paris but the au pair job was not in Paris, it was in Versailles and I lived with a family and that was another amazing experience for four or five months. You'll have to read the memoir. Mm. Can't possibly talk about it. Yeah, we can't that. do the whole memoir here. Um, and but we can tease it. Then I went back to London and went and got a job in the BBC as a, in their library, and that was another fantastic experience. And I think I had you know one of those fairly stereotypical years in London living on nothing, you know, being paid four pounds a week mm. and working very hard. And I had a second job as an usherette at the Notting Hill Classic and, you know, good life experience stuff after being a fairly well-supported, um, you know, middle-class family in Australia mm. and I really was living on nothing. So where did where did the food inspiration come from? At what well, I point? was already into food. So I mean, the reason I, for going to France was... To, was I was it in love with the language okay. and I loved the art and all the stories I read, which were no doubt highly coloured of romantic lives of great Impressionist painters and things and I thought, you know, this is what France was all about. And But I was very interested in food and I had become very interested in food in Australia and I talked a lot to mum, I cooked meals at home, I put on special, you know, made special evenings for the family or for a boyfriend or whatever. So it was, it was already very thoroughly entrenched as a major interest of mine. Mm. Um, and when I'd gone to the university, um, I stayed, I was living in a residential college and I'm well known for having railed against the food in the college and made public speeches which infuriated the principal of the college who kept saying, you know, we did our best and I kept saying, incredibly arrogant of me, but anyway, I kept saying, you know, we're adults, we're adults and we're being asked to eat at lunchtime white bread and and jam served in an A10 tin <laughs> and this is not what we should be eating. I so I... Um, you know, wasn't very popular, really. Yeah, but outspoken grandfather and father, it was bound to have passed on somewhere and it first it found its first outlet over white bread and jam. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think that France um, galvanised in your well, mind it, it, about food? It reinforced the fantasies in, in a most, absolute, almost every one of them. The family that I was with just had one small child, so mum and dad and small child. Both parents worked, obviously, because why they needed no pair. And every evening, they, they worked in Paris, so every evening they came back and there was a division of labour. Monsieur used to make the salad dressing, just was an absolute ritual. Um, something would have been provided for dinner. It was rarely meat, rarely fish, it was usually vegetables. And I, my job during the day would have been to do a little bit of shopping very carefully. I'd be told which cheese shop to go to and which particular variety of camembert I was to order. Um, and I used to have the little girl next to me and I'd say, now tell me again, what's the word for stale? Because <laughs> I was told I had to, <laughs> what is it? And she would say, she would tell me very carefully what the word was so I didn't look stupid when I had to take the bread back that Madame said wasn't good enough from the day before. That's pretty uh, pretty scary. Um, but, you know, they ate together every night. The food was important. Um, and everywhere I went, 
you could see the food was important. That's why you took the bread back if you felt it hadn't been perfect and why you stood happily in a queue while the shopkeeper had a conversation with every customer and nobody was impatient. They just waited because they knew those exchanges were incredibly important. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I then went back to France after my BBC stint as a teacher, teacher of English conversation into a school for a year. And again, uh, the difference between what those kids who are learning to be primary school teachers, are so probably 18 or 19 or something, what they were fed for lunch, there was a chef in the kitchen, and then a little carrot salad, a little pork chop, pork chop, bowl of green salad, then a bowl of fruit put on the table. I mean, it was simple, but it was perfectly cooked and done with a certain ceremony, and that's what I loved. And that's what I still love, yeah. that things are done correctly, not fancy. But fresh and beautiful and, you don't and having put, time to I'd enjoy it. I'd never put a plastic container on the table, ever. Mm. I would never buy butter in a plastic container, ever. You know, I think those things are an offence. Mm. I like it. Yeah, I like it. And I like the fact that more and more people, people who are listening to this are interested in the same thing. You know, my daughter went to France on exchange last year and the first thing she said, and she comes from a foodie family, we've sat down and had that meal time is the most, I've, my, even my wife would go, why do you insist, you know, that the television's off and that we sit down at the mm. table? And we've done it for every day, I think, of Jenna's life and she's 18 now. Mm. But she went to France, she said, Dad, first thing I noticed, two hours for lunch yeah. at school. Yeah. So they all go to school and they're buying things like, you know, canelay and a, you know, a little cup of coffee, for example. But they're going out for lunch for two hours. And I said, yeah, but it works beautifully. And the focus on food is, is at a different level. Even yeah. now when we think about how foodie we are amongst, you know, uh, Australians that care about it, not really by any comparison to that, is it? Absolutely not. And my experiences in France over the years, and I do try to go as often as possible, the best experiences are in the countryside where there's been less infiltration of yeah. McDonald's and everything that goes with it. And you still have in the country markets are still an absolute joy for me. And, and they actually used to, in the restaurant years when things could get really nasty and tough, a trip to France would bring back all the enthusiasm because yeah. I just would see how in the markets the ordinary people really cared about what potato they bought, really cared about whether the peaches were ripe. Um, and they weren't, it wasn't an affectation. They weren't wandering off to some super smart fruit shop to do it. They This was what they yeah. did. So we found a little bit out about the kind of foundation of, you know, what set you off on this path. But Going into the restaurant business, I think, in the 60s here in Australia. 76. Utter, utter oh, well, Jamaica First House. One. Jamaica we House, don't have to 66. Too yeah. many details, but that, seriously, yeah. uh, it would have been a, a totally different Yeah, there were uh, no black place. people other than Indigenous Australians. So you, you've got a I've Jamaican, got a, you come back from London with a Jamaican a husband. Big, tall Jamaican husband <laughs> with a black beard, and uh, that was already bizarre, and I had to ring my mother from London to say, oh, by the way, I'm getting married next week, and, he, and my husband's going to be Jamaican. Oh, oh, lovely, said mum. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what she said? Oh, they were fine, but, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a surprise. And um, when we arrived back, Monty was very vague about what he wanted to do as a job and uh, he wanted to do some importing from Jamaica of foodstuffs, canned things, ackee and whatever. And I said to him, nobody's going to eat this unless they've been able to try it. Why don't we have a coffee lounge? Because coffee lounges were the big thing mm. in the 60s. Um, 
And so that seemed like a good idea. So we just, and I said, well, of course, it'll have to be in Ligon Street. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, he knew nothing about Australia apart from cricket. And um, so we opened a uh, Jamaica house in Ligon Street and did serve all these things. And I wrote the menu, of course, and I had a wonderful time inventing quasi-West Indian dishes. And they weren't bad when I look back on them, really, actually. <laughs> Stamp and go fritters and uh, things. Anyway, so that was – so we did that and it was absolutely a blast as far as the Melbourne public was concerned. I mean, it was incredibly simple food um, because the place we rented was hopeless. had a hole in the floor in the kitchen, I remember, right in front of the stove, which was inconvenient. Handy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we, that – that first location probably only lasted about 18 months and nearly wiped both of us out. I had a three-week-old baby and um, we were, Monty was had a job in Hyatt where he started at four in the morning and finished at midnight, midday so he could come back and then work in the restaurant. And so I, you can imagine it wasn't ideal. Yeah. So the idea of it and the reality of it, two totally different things. Which, of course, it- <laughs> is a bit of a... A no-brainer now for you yeah. to talk to anyone who's thinking of going into a restaurant. I think you must be mad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> mad, I think madder in 60, when was it? 64, 66. 60, oh, 66, okay. I wasn't born, 67. And I think I'm getting old, you see. <laughs> <laughs> the world looked different then. So did it break the bank as well? Was it a, a oh, tough absolutely. time? absolutely. It was and terrible, terrible financially. And the thing that, that saved... <clears throat> the reputation of Jamaica House was that Monty found a terrific business partner, a Greek, and they had an absolutely marvellous partnership for the next, I don't know, 20 years or something. They moved, the Jamaica House moved to various locations. We had separated. We'd kill each other us about. And, um, you know, sad, really sad, a complete waste of a lot of good feelings and things, but it was just an impossible situation. Yeah, but the reality at the time and... You know, yeah. you don't see it at the time. No. So, so what was the impetus going forward and then opening Stephanie's itself, your the restaurant that everybody knows? Well, I just you think for? I kept on. Also, at that stage, was starting to be that um, buzz about food, just starting the sort of nouvelle cuisine. It was a little bit later. That was seventy five. So, well, that's right. I opened Stephanie's restaurant seventy six. Nouvelle cuisine in France was seventy five. Yeah. Already we were getting, you know, stories coming back. There was a, a little bit of media in the way of food magazines, very glamorous European food magazines coming into the country. Uh, people were travelling a bit more and you were hearing the names of Bocuse and all these people. And and I just kept up with all of that because I was interested until at some point uh, Mieta needed somebody to give them a hand on a Sunday so they could give a, the chef a shift off so I thought, oh, well, why don't I put my hand up for that? Which I did. And it was not much actually original cooking. I was mostly sort of continuing the content of what had happened during the week. But mm. it was enough for me to get my feet back in the kitchen and sort of get seduced again by the rush of the adrenaline yeah. and the excitement of preparing and the occasional nice things said to you from somebody out the front and... So I got very inspired by that and thought, hey, I, I could do this, I could do this. And um, they were up one end of Brunswick Street and so I sort of walked down the other end of Brunswick Street and sort of convinced myself um, and a friend at the time who had nothing to do with food but always liked a new project that I could take on this restaurant. 
and um, that was the start. So that was in Brunswick Street in 1976. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. So how, how did it go? I mean, if I bring it up to my experience of arriving in Australia and, and going to Stephanie's, it was in Auburn Road. Mm-hmm. So a big grand building. Started think, in Brunswick Street though. Four, four years in moved. Brunswick Street and then moved to... So the hard um, yards in Brunswick Street, establishing your reputation. And it was established, but, but it, it was huge from the beginning. And why was that? What, what did people gravitate to? it was good. To? Of course it was good. <laughs> what, what did people gravitate to? Was it because well, it, was, it was different, it was new? It was a fixed-price restaurant, which okay. was unheard of, apart from Tony and Gay were doing this in Bar, uh, Le Bon Goût in yep. Sydney. So a fixed price gave me perfect opportunity to design a really lovely menu, which in the early days I used to change every week. I soon got over that. Um, and it was unusual food and I tried, and pe- for people to be offered a beginning, a middle and an end was a new way of eating for many people. Um, there were, and that was, pre- that was pretty novel. Uh, as we know, that was pretty normal to, for every people in France. But for the Australian eating out public to have a little something and then something slightly bigger and then a little something at the end was different instead of the giant plate with steak yeah. and beetroot and God knows what all on yeah. the one plate. Um and it was good and uh, I cared very much about how it was all cooked and we worked very, very hard and as always. Yeah. And what were you most proud of back back in those early days? I mean, do you still remember what the what the room smelled like or what, you know, were you annoyed by one rickety chair or my mother you know, used to a come every, performing stove? My mother used to come <laughs> every week and do beautiful little posies of flowers to put on every table and that was something I loved. I have bought linen from Liberties. I mean, for goodness sake, what it's you talk ridiculous. about cost. Absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. But, but they, they would have been spectacular. They did look very pretty. Yeah. So there was no expense spared to do beautiful things. And that's gone on being a characteristic, you know, even at the second Stephanie's I had some a glass blower make beautiful handmade salt dishes because I loved them and because, you know, I just wanted wanted it to be a place that was a pleasure to go to. Yeah. Did you feel like a trailblazer at the time? Yeah. Or did you feel, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. I thought I'm really showing them. Is that, what, is that what has driven you always? I hope not, but there has certainly been a bit of that, you know, decent uh, wine glasses. You can't believe when I first started some of the grand restaurants, probably not Two Faces, but were serving wine in a, you know, just daggy little Duralex glasses. Mm. So there was there was a need for a general lift of Standards about having a wonderful dining experience, and from from my memory and odd things that I remember people saying when I first came here, and that was back in ninety one. That was things like getting growers to grow tomatoes or fennel or import Salads. particular Salads wines. Salads and beans were my two big things. Yeah, um, asking a grower to pick 
salads when they were small, which, you know, I had no concept really about what I was talking about as far as making them lose money. Um, but on the other hand, I was also prepared to pay for it. I never argued about the price. My then husband used to tear his hair out at the sort of extravagances as he saw it that I indulged um, with saying to people, that's fine, I'll pay for it or we'll take all of it and that yeah. sort of thing. Some, I was very aware that if you were asking somebody to do something special, you couldn't just do it one week and never do it. I mean, I hear from my friend Maggie that that sort of thing is what drives her daughter mad, you know, who's a farmer and producing all sorts of wonderful things. A restaurant decides they'll put it on their menu for a month. Yeah. And then they don't order it again for three years or something. Of course, and you gear yourself you up. You cannot run a business on that yeah. basis. So somewhere along the line there's got to be an understanding that you are also got a responsibility to the supplier. I always remember a very early conversation. I was working at Brown's and having a conversation with a farmer who said, I've got a whole lot of tomatoes that essentially I'm growing for Stephanie and no one else. That's a long time ago. And Good I went, him. oh, what's she got that I haven't got? What's she, what's, she, what's she got him growing? But it's interesting because now we kind of, we, you know, potter around the markets and we're picking up things like zucchini flowers and, mm. you know, all sorts of different mushrooms and beautiful asparagus of lots of different grades, hopefully grown in Australia in mm. season. But that didn't, that didn't exist. So you would have been really fighting uh, a lot of problems all at once. Yeah. And then dealing with all the other stuff that you've got to deal with as a restaurateur. Indeed. Favourite times? In the in the glory days of Stephanie's, when you when you hit your straps and gone. Oh, you know, a, a great service is nothing like it. You know, the food's <laughs> going out beautifully, and you don't nobody makes a mistake. And um, uh, you look at it and you say, "This is this is really lovely." I used to often work at the pass, but or I'd do on the entrees where I could see what was happening with the main courses, and. Um, it could be fabulous. And I loved, also loved at the end of service, like about 10 past 10 when all the mains were gone, or nicking upstairs because for a long time I lived upstairs, dropping all the evil chef's gear, jumping into a pair of silk trousers and a silk T-shirt because I was hot and sweaty, going down and sitting in the restaurant with Dure, who was then running the floor. And that was marvellous to watch the... Christoph floating around the floor and the, the every, you know, the rhythm of the dining room gave me a lot of pleasure watching how everybody was happy and smiling and, yeah. Yeah. It's a nice thing to be able to do and actually a lot of chefs, a lot of restaurateurs don't do that. They, they don't should. have the pleasure of their own restaurant. And they need to eat their own food. Eating their and own food And they need to the eat their own food sitting at a table, not picking mm. it off a plate that's come back to the past. It's interesting, and I don't. I hope you. Hopefully, you won't be offended. And I thought about it. Do I tell her this or do I not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when I when I worked in London, I worked at um, the Intercontinental at Hyde Park with Peter Cromberg, oh. and I think many many years ago, you may have, and I'm, my memory's a bit shady about it, but you may have done a um, a dinner there. It was at Le Souffle, and I remember seeing this Australian woman, and I was a preoccupied, arrogant, right. only working Michelin stars, horrible young man, right. thinking, what is this Australian woman? doing and I remember seeing pictures of the food and thinking that it was um, you know basic. basic and clumsy and not very sophisticated and I basically I remember thinking at the time who cares right rewind uh, fast forward I hope you're not offended. I hope no, you're not no, offended no. yet. No, you no. might be. Dave's got his head in his hands. It's right? all right. It's all right. No, because I'm... it'll make sense. It'll make sense and you'll I, understand. I'm going to go home on the tram. Get my I head remember in. then coming to Australia and then eating in your restaurant and I had a. Um, uh, twice baked cheese souffle, and I think it was with watercress sauce, mm. and it was 
absolutely delicious. And it was at that moment, and I think it was followed by, and I just remember that dish very specifically, just because it was beautiful. Everything about it was was beautifully prepared, and it was big, and I and I loved it. And I think somewhere along the line, there was probably tuna with some roasted Mediterranean vegetables, and everything was very cooked, and which was the opposite of what we'd been cooking in London. Everything was quite fast and fresh and, you know, beautifully cut. And if it wasn't a tiny little dice, it wasn't good enough. And if there wasn't lots of space on a plate, it never looked pretty. <laughs> but I sat there in the dining room and just went, yum, that's delicious. And of course, as I've got older, understood very clearly that that's what you were doing from the get-go, the, the very essence of what you were doing. Have you got your head out of your hands now? Yeah, good. Because it's made sense as I, as I got older that, of course, the best restaurants can, it doesn't matter what it looks like, it can be, there's an old saying that I use, which is perfect delivery, imperfect experience, mm. which I got from someone, which means everything's fantastic, seemingly so, but it didn't really touch the soul. I just always remember it. And I think now when I look at it, I go, that's a kind of pivotal point, you know, even just eating your food that I, I remember going, it, it's... It has to be delicious. In the end, it, it doesn't matter what it looks like. It's got to have heart. It's got to mm. be delicious. And it, and I st I'm still guilty of when I do dinners, when I'm traveling and I do dinners, I put far too many things on a plate and I have to really work hard at taking things Sometimes off. Sometimes I still do that. And, and just go stop being so fancy because in the end, the nice bit mm. is the mash and gravy kind of, you know, <laughs> as a, you know, when you hyphenate it. That's right. So why did you close the restaurant? Oh, lots of reasons. Mostly, mostly we were in the middle of a, the nineties recession, and the flay and the, the demand for that sort of full-on dining experience was definitely lessening. So we were having less patrons. It was an extremely expensive operation running Stephanie's restaurant on two levels. With I had something like <coughs> we served about one hundred and forty on a Saturday night in about four times the space that would now be used to serve 140 people. So the people, waiters running up and downstairs. And, you know, so it was a very, very cost-heavy establishment. I didn't have ever a proper appreciation of the bottom line and I consider that to be a, an incredibly important failing of mine. Um, so I was never cognisant of just how badly I had structured the financial thing of the mm. restaurant. Duray and I fell out as partners. That had that was important. That it, once you didn't have that support, and mm. was that part of the financial strain amongst other things? Or? Amongst other things, yeah. Um, and and I think I just felt that I couldn't do it at the same level anymore. I felt that it had it's at its best. It had been a very personal restaurant, and really at its best when I was in the kitchen even if I wasn't on the pans, I was just there watching, no, take that off, do you know, that sort of thing. Once I no longer got enjoyment out of doing that, it's, it somehow seemed different. Plus my marriage fell apart and I had to, we, oh, no, you know, every stress you could possibly imagine all at the same time. So I had to do something. And so I, it was, of course, impossible to sell it because nobody wanted to buy Stephanie's restaurant. So I had to do the truly dreadful, but in a way probably helpful thing of stripping the restaurant down and selling it at auction bit by bit. Yeah, I remember that. And the important thing for me, and I think it's probably a good thing to say publicly, is because I had written The Cook's Companion, 
I was able to pay off every cent that everybody I'd owed anybody, mm. including my father, including the bank. And so I could walk away and say, I've done this very well for 21 years. Nobody has got any grievance with me financially. Um, see you later. I mean, as a restaurateur, or what, you know, I've sold my restaurants now, but the, the relief of um, being able to settle a debt or not having that over your head is something that we well, can be proud of, obviously. How did, how did you when deal with that? When I settled the books, it was a fantastic feeling. Um, I also owed money to my father who had invested in me uh, all that time and I've only found out many years later that my siblings were a bit anxious about this because uh, he'd really put the, his modest amount of uh, investment super, I suppose, into supporting me. And although I was paying interest on it, it was at a lower rate, et cetera, et cetera. So it was fantastic to feel that I was able to clear that as well as all the bank. And um, the worst thing of all was the second auction, which was of the kitchen equipment. And, you know, we'd slaved to make the kitchen look absolutely spotless, gurneyed the floor, you know, done anything you like. And after the auction, people came in with crowbars and pulled the um, cool room apart or the stove or the fan and there was grease everywhere and it was absolutely disgusting. And that was a very, very depressing moment. Um, but and then we had a party on the last night, <laughs> had to have a party. And at some point, God knows I was probably pissed out of my mind. I, I probably had had a few glasses of wine anyway. The restaurant, the floor manager came up to me and said, here are the keys. Now, that was that was something. I was not too drunk to register that, oh, my God, you know, there is nobody here but me. And I have to lock everything up, mm. push out the clean away bin, you know, pick up the 97,000 bottles that have been strewn all over the garden. Um, that brought and me back to reality. Yeah. But a moment, isn't it? A moment in time. <laughs> and it's funny how you, I mean, obviously you will look at the restaurant. I wonder how many people look at the restaurant because I do, all that building. I did, you know, because it's just that there's something um, iconic, even though it, it doesn't exist in the same way, but it's something iconic about that building in a period in Melbourne's history. So, you know, you've left something behind and, and somebody, well, lots of people have got little piece of Stephanie's at home, haven't they? They have. Maybe it's a glass or a set of cutlery I've, or a I've heard, a had emails from people who bought the carpet <laughs> and somebody else who's got chairs and um, somebody else who's got some of the Villaroy and Bock china. So there are so, a few people who keep in touch so it lives, with me. It lives on in many different ways. <laughs> and, of course, and you've gone on probably to greater success. I mean, and talking about the Cook's Companion, how many do you know actually how many you've sold? Because well, I've read half a million, but it must be it must be more than well, that now. Well, yes, it's probably, I still say 500,000 copies in hardback um, and it's been revised twice and there's an app and the app is marvellous and it deserves to be far better known. Um, 500,000 copies, I mean, it's still selling. Yeah. But it doesn't sell like it did 22 years ago. But 22 years ago it was written, which is, that, that is an amazing achievement. I can't believe I wrote it. How long did it take you to write? Four years. Four years. It's an exceptional cookbook and the reason it's exceptional, and I think it isn't it on the recommended list like number one for all colleges in Australia for professional cooks because mm. actually the recipes work. There's no pictures in it. No. It's just a tome of, 
you know, hundreds of recipes. Yeah. How many recipes are in there? I've never counted them. Oh, I reckon them, if you'd count the marginal ones too, probably near close to a 1,000. Yeah. And a normal cookbook, to put it into perspective, is about 100, mm. 120, with lots of fancy photos that well, generally... currently I'm trying at. to write one and to, that doesn't have anything, any recipe that's in the course companion. It's remarkably difficult. My goodness. <laughs> there you go. But um, people always ask, what cookbook should I buy? I go, buy Stephanie Alexander's uh, Cook's Companion because every single recipe in it works. It's, and it sounds a silly thing, but you also know that a lot of people that write cookbooks don't actually test the recipes and so they don't know whether they actually work the way they intended to. So <laughs> it's nice to know that you did that. So t- talk about um, the kitchen garden program because obviously that's what you talk about now, but that seriously, in, to put it into perspective in my life, my daughter went to Murrumbina Primary and the kitchen garden program's been in place there for many years now. Fantastic. And I remember going and uh, they asked me just, you know, because my daughter had left mm-hmm. school and gone on to... Uh, secondary school, and they said, "Can you come back and just do a you know be you know mm. be with the kids because they all know Master Chef, and the joy on these children's faces and the quality of the program there with their garden and everything is just absolutely mind blowing." It is an amazing program, and it's um, was one school in two thousand and one, and we currently have two thousand schools and early learning centres who are all part of the family. Some of them are just starting. Some of them are very, very small and others are, have been, like your daughter's school, have been mm. in the program for many years and have got a very sophisticated garden and gardens, are, you know, matured and so on. So I get enormous pleasure and pride in visiting these schools and I do as often as I can. Um, sometimes it's to go and advise a new school of the best way to start or how they can use their bit of space because they often say, we haven't got much space, we can't do it. And we say, yes, you can. This is how you do it. And um, we are currently, we've got Medibank as a great partner and we are always looking for lovely great partners. And so I was saying to the CEO yesterday, we're financially in a situation where we can continue to do what we do but we cannot grow anymore without government support. We do intermittently. Every now and then we get a bit of government support. But we bo- I believe in my heart that this program is so important mm. that it should be part of every child's primary school education. Now, for that to happen, that requires a massive amount of government support and it would have to be federal support too. We've had... We had, you know, one and a half million from the state government last year. And we, there's lot, been lots of input for particular programs or, you know, bring on another 100 schools or whatever, whatever. But to do it really well, uh, it requires a proper understanding that this is not just contributing to eating choices. It's teaching kids about relating to each other. It's social behaviour. It's sustainability. It integrates with the curriculum. It makes things meaningful. Abstract concepts can be made meaningful. I mean, it's, it is amazing when you go to a school that's really doing it well. And, and the health of these children as they get older. It just gives them that knowledge that they can take on wherever they go. And I think it's actually... Uh, from my memory, it was only one year that I think most well, of the children schools, six and schools, six and seven. Schools I think it is. choose. We've we like them to do it for two consecutive years, and we think the the optimum years are probably years three and four. But we have had to become more flexible and less uh, dogmatic, and we now say a school has to decide what works best for them. Um, and sometimes a school says we're so big. We can only do it once a fortnight to get the classes through. 
and we're so big we can only do it for one level, you know. So we have to we have to encourage and support schools at whatever level they're at. And when you see now um, that, in fact, in Clarendon Street, South Melbourne, the early learning centre, where the three-year-olds and four-year-olds, you should see them at it, making their own ravioli and uh, helping themselves, serving themselves green salad. I was there recently. Amazing. Yeah, mind-blowing. And actually, when you put it into perspective, because I think, you know, people that are listening to this love food. You know, that's what the whole point of tuning into this podcast. But there are a lot of people out there that don't love food. And so the average diet, the average, you know, kid out there is not exposed to anything great at all. You know, our diets are poor, our choices are poor. You know, when you still consider that we're eating white bread as a priority, cheap milk, all of these things that are kind of abominations in our mind, but it's the reality. I know it's the reality. And so to put it in school is crucial, isn't it? And it's one of the things, it's one of my particular obsessions is my concern that the food media in its broadest sense often talks as if everybody um, shops at a farmer's market or ought to shop at a farmer's market or only buys, you know, the best, this, that and the other. And I know and you know that probably 99% of the population are looking for the lowest price and don't have a lot of knowledge themselves of how best. I mean, if I had had lost, had no money at all and lived on the pension... I'm sure I would still eat well because I know how to do it, but nobody else, it seems to me, very few people do. Yeah, Even my close friends who I've known for 60 years at university, they're educated, they're this, that and the other, they still make terrible food choices about purchasing. Yeah. You know, well, I think they, they did a bit of research into how many people cook at home, how many people sit down Mm. in front of the family table. And lots of people go, yeah, we sit down in front of the family table. And actually when you start digging in, it actually means they're sitting down watching TV, having a bowl of pasta. Now, did you cook the pizza delivered. Yeah, or did you cook the pasta? And then digging in a bit further, they they realised that they were buying a pasta sauce and the pasta. So their definition of cooking was actually reheating the sauce, Mm. boiling the pasta and putting it together, which is quite a shock. And I think most people that are foodies have no idea that, you know, if you face, especially if you don't have a lot of money, and also depending on where you live in Australia, that is things true. are very, very. I think different. where you live is not talked about nearly enough. I think if you live in a regional, original big town, that's one thing. But if you live in a country town, you're very restricted about yeah. the things that you can. Your access to fresh food and, and the you cost may be of able to, food. of course, to grow. You may be able to grow some food a bit more easily than mm. somebody in uh, I don't know. Malvern, maybe, yeah. maybe. Do you have some stories that you tell all the time out of that program, like kids that have maybe got older now that have been through it's the been, program, things say, that you cherish? I, I did have one parent, this is a fairly extreme story, but she said her daughter was anorexic and um, she was in the class and nobody put any pressure on her to eat, but and she, as with a lot of anorexics in my experience, was cooked with a few of them. They love being around food. They love yeah. cooking food. They like handling it. They just don't want to eat it. Um, and this little girl, after a certain, I don't know, weeks, months in the class, started to taste things and her mother said, this program has done more for my kid than three years of therapy. You know, that I don't know what that means really, excepting that for us it was a wonderful, a wonderful warm story um, but we do have a lot of stories much of kids who are a bit nervous about green things and parents who say, well, of course, my child doesn't eat vegetables 
And we say, well, that's interesting because he's just having second helping of a <laughs> pasta stuffed with Silver Beach, you know, which he grew, which was grown in the garden and which he's helped pick and helped chop and he's loved using the knife and he's really enjoyed making the stuffing and they've loved rolling up the pasta and now he's loving eating it. Yeah. So what... Is there a thing that you think that people misunderstand about you or there's a misconception about Stephanie Alexander? Oh, yes, because I always come across as extremely fierce. and You are fierce. Fierce and argumentative. <laughs> and, in fact, I am terrified a lot of the time and I'm a very shy person. I find uh, I'm, I'm introverted and shy, but I do come across as fierce and mm. in food situations. If we asked a few of those chefs back in the day, though, would they tell you the truth? Were you really fierce? They'd say she used to stamp her feet and then we knew we were in trouble. (laughs) We we used to joke actually on MasterChef when we came up, we go, ooh, we're slightly terrified because Stephanie's coming, but you're always the most delightful and wonderful person to have. But it was, I think, that we used to go, she always looks fierce, but she's lovely. Why do you come across as fierce, do you think? I think it's a protective thing. I think I want to sound opinionated. I want to sound as if I'm absolutely certain about what I want or know. And, of course, I never am. Hmm. I'm usually dying inwardly. I wonder if that's really the right question or or should I have... Why don't you, you mentioned earlier that, that, that you went through a period, maybe I heard it incorrectly, but you were talking about a period of where you're being quite arrogant about what you were doing or, you know, with the type of cooking, maybe the friends that you were surrounded by or the, you know, the people that we look back on and go, well, they were the alumni of the cooking world back then. Did you, did you did you go through a period where I the, think that I was, fearsome kind of reputation was I don't know whether fierce earned? is right there or just opinionated. You know, I had done a lot of thinking about a lot of those things and so I had very strong opinions about yeah. them and I would put them forcefully. And um, and I am inclined to put things forcefully and... Are you less apologetic? My dad says this, he's less, and I am too now, less apologetic as you get older because in the end you, you get fed up with listening to the same thing over and over again, especially if you feel very strongly about something. I think I'm still pretty direct about things. I think there are times when I could be a lot more tactful or sometimes, you know, there are people who say, I wonder if you would mind, whereas I'd say, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to me like a waste of time to go through all the... I wonder if the niceties. Can, yeah. can, can you think of something um, in the past or it could be recently, it doesn't matter, that you're exceptionally proud of that you pleased to hang your hat on? I think almost everything that I've done in the sense of an achievement or a project, I'm proud of. And I think I've done them all extremely well, often at personal cost. That's true. But I've always, Jamaica House, I was proud of that. Started something that, you know, really changed Australia. Stephanie's Restaurant, very proud of that. Despite And all the people that uh, were influenced, I won't say trained, but influenced by what happened at Stephanie's Restaurant. That's a huge number. Um, the Cook's Companion, a massive achievement. And I did, and once I'd started it, I, you know, I had no option but to continue on until it was got to the end. But I had no idea that it would have that impact. I knew I was doing something really important and good, but uh, it was amazing. And it was a moment in time too. And now with the Kitchen Garden Foundation, I know that is incredibly important. With the Kitchen Garden Foundation, I feel that its future is out of my hands. I mean, I lobby and I sit with politicians and I sit on as few committees as I can organise, but my our CEO 
represents us admirably. I wonder whether that will change in my lifetime. So there's still a question mark over that. Change in what way? What, what well, you... I would like to see that every child, every Australian child has the opportunity of being introduced to what good food is, how they can actually grow some of it and how they can manage their own food life in a way that leads to health and happiness. Yeah. So to continue to grow, to be part of every school program in Australia mm. and to be there mm. for Just like, perpetuity. like running around the Oval or uh, whatever else part of seen as yeah, an important be, part of school life. I think it'd be a wonderful thing. I love this idea. I think we had um, Paul West on the program and he said, you know, if you don't cook, you don't care. And it's really stuck with me because I've just thought, you know what, it's, I've become more, I'm, I think it's because I have time now. It's a difference between being a chef or a restaurateur where you're just preoccupied by lots of other things and they're mainly, mainly commercial and they're all sorts of the stuff that just get, gets you buried, you know, and not thinking about things. And now I have time. Like even if I'm pouring milk into a glass or I'm taking, you know, taking a piece of meat out of the fridge and I, I do start to think that we've got ourselves in a terrible state. People don't really know what we're, they're eating. Mm-hmm. I think terrible things are done in the name of people that, you know, in the name mm. of the consumer. Mm. And we we kind of give away all that power to someone else. Yeah, I, um, think that, and I think that's what I find. There's a lot to worry about in the world of food. I find it amazing that so many people don't tap into the joy that their food life can give them mm. and not just sharing it with other people. But, I mean, I live by myself, so often I'm eating by myself. And I put quite a lot of effort into yeah. setting the table making sure I've got my jug of water and my glass of wine and I know exactly what I'm going to eat and it's... It's a wonderful thing. I'm looking after myself. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Stephanie Alexandra, thank you so much for spending a bit of time and we've missed out so many pieces in your career that um, maybe... comes of living so long. We'll have to do another one at some (laughs) point to fill in the gaps. So thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure. I loved it. Tips and tricks for this episode. And Stephanie Alexandra cannot leave the studio without inspiring the both of us. Producer Dave, uh-huh. you grow a little something in your laneway, don't you? Yeah, I grow, um, I've got a laneway garden with, uh, it's got rainbow chard, kale, carrot. Wow. I'm a real Brunswick hipster. I love it. So I, I'm the cliche. Green fingers. But it shows you that in a small garden and a suburban garden, or an urban garden, you can grow plenty of stuff. Heaps. I always recommend herbs because they're easy to grow. Once they get established, they're a gift that keeps on giving. Things like rosemary, thyme, sage, parsley is another one. Stuff that you're going to use a lot of in your own kitchen. So have a think about that first before you plant. I also recommend things like rhubarb because it grows like crazy. You'll be giving it away before you know it. And dwarf fruit trees plant a lemon a lime maybe an apple and i tell you what once you get that little green addiction dave what's next in dave's garden i'm sold a plate to call home is a podcast one production produced by dave swalensky with audio production by darcy thompson 